Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that here in New York City, Stephen Wining joins us, City Private Bank Global Chief Investment Strategist. Good morning to you, Steve. Morning. Look, either investors think an agreement will still materialize or global growth bottoming isn't that dependent on a trade truce. Which one is it? So, look, I think um, there is a little bit of leap of faith here that at least ahead of the U.S. election at the end of next year, that we will certainly not um, create a greater uh, shock uh, on the trade front. Uh, that there is um, a good deal of hope still there, but not utter clarity uh, that we will pull down the tariffs, which we impose on ourselves, uh, for example. But, you know, the I think the larger economic story is, is that we had a true um, severe, it, you'll see it in the data in a couple months, inventory correction, that we have been producing uh, fewer goods for export uh, than are actually being demanded. Uh, and that if we were to stall here and simply hold these tariffs, we would rebound, we would grow through this. Uh, so I, I think it's still important for the direction of markets. You know, if you look at yesterday's market action uh, today, I think the fact that, again, like you said, if we can't even agree on, uh, you know, the level of soybean exports, uh, that this is not uh, a, a done deal. And that's going to impact market sentiment more than almost any of the other news. Well, what's the message to investors, to our listeners this morning when stocks are still near all time highs? The this Chinese is data is weak. The trade talks have quite clearly hit a series of road bumps. And yet... We are still near all-time highs. Markets are telling us where the economy is going. And I think it's important, again, that the way that we have set this up, that with the an absence of a severe pullback in inflation, uh, rise in inflation, if we don't have um, over-levered uh, consumers that just have no capacity uh, to grow, uh, and if we've just been yeah. cutting factory output, the economy can rebound. We are going to have a new all-time high in profits next year. Okay, tell me if I'm wrong next year. Uh, and uh, with share prices uh, going up uh, to all-time highs, well, okay. you know, like a lot of things, uh, this is where things go uh, in terms of in terms of okay. nominal returns. Let's get out year. the crystals and pyramids right now and zone right in with Stephen Whiting and Citigroup. Yuri and Timmer, thank you, Alec Tanzi, for bringing me that uh, important note. Jurgen Timmer, rather, up at Fidelity with a hugely bullish note this morning on the end of the drawdown, as you just said, on inventories. We had uh, Steve Chivaron in here yesterday with Federated. Yep. He's single pointing up 13%, whatever your number. I don't need a number, Stephen Whiting. I'm looking at that technology stock, Walmart, up 41% year to date and up $3, make it 4 make it $5 right now off of this earnings report. How do you have a bull market, this bull market, this long in this cycle? Well, you know, simply not having a massive collapse in earnings, a big rise in unemployment, any and, of those things that don't seem to be necessary yeah. when we have a low inflation And Lisa, rate. this goes back to Tony Dwyer 101, which is if you don't have a recession, it's tough to get negative. Well, you could also say this is just a massive bout of fear of missing out with the S&P up 26% which isn't great. That's not a great reason to be it's, investing right now. That's okay. What was 18? <laughs> All right, you added the triple leverage cash fund yet? No, I'm not. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, so 2018 <laughs> was the biggest valuation drop that we've had. Now, again, you had a uh, down uh, market last year with sharply up earnings. This year, we have a sharply up market with flat earnings. And, you know, in the end, we made some progress here, but our two-year return is not really dramatic. I think, again, the big returns 
Uh, the, when, I, when I'm optimistic on the economy in 2020, that's reflected in the stock market this year. So next year, it's going to be a more moderate return environment. It's going to be a somewhat more volatile environment for lots of reasons that you can guess. But people who are zooming, for example, to the end of 2020, I don't know for certain who's going to be president. I don't know for certain how Brexit is going to be resolved. They're going to ignore the economy's performance at their peril. Let's put some capital to work then. What do you do, Steve? So look, I think uh, we have gone and tilted from being um, overweight global bonds as of August to now underweight. Um, I don't think it's an extreme position. I don't think you're going to lose a lot of money uh, in bonds in the, in the next uh, year. Uh, but we've tilted from defensive equities, you know, to again, to realign, to get a little bit more cyclical exposure. Um, that's worked so well recently that, you know, when I think about the full year 2020, um, I have some doubts that cyclicals are just going to race through the full year 2020. Um, so if you want to think about, again, investing and really holding a position for the full year 2020, I want you know, stocks that provide current income and grow current income now. That sort of these, you know, show me with current performance uh, that these types of equities are, you know, a good um, allocation for a world in which global bond yields, including emerging markets and high yield, you know, are down near one and a half percent. You're back to neutral. Would it be fair to say you're back to neutral just in terms of the weightings? This is, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that we are reasonably more optimistic on where we will be going uh, in trade-sensitive cyclical equities, you know, over at least the near term. Um, our longer-term asset allocation aimed at 12 to 18 months, you know, again, is not expecting any kind of, you know, repeat of 2019 returns. What happens if no trade deal? Um, I think that you'll take a setback uh, in markets. You'll see the dollar strengthen. Uh, you'll see equities uh, weaken a bit on this, but I don't think it ends this current ex expansion and that eventually you make up for that uh, when uh, we continue to grow through it. Stephen Whiting, thank you so much. He thank you, with Steve. Citigroup this morning. Here's what you need to know. Fred Bergsten, when he invented the Peterson Institute, and along with Adam Posen's excellent leadership, likes acuity. The secret is on the Delta shuttle, the American Airlines shuttle, is they read Mary Lovely. Her reports are exceptionally acute at the Peterson Institute about the trade war. And John, uh, Mary Lovely of Syracuse and the Peterson Institute really has a wonderful bar chart of the profound effects across computer and electronic products, electric equipment, apparel and accessories, machinery, except electrical. There's a detail here that's profound. And I'm pleased to say that Mary Lovely joins us now, Peterson Institute non-resident senior fellow. Mary, great to have you with us on the program. For a long time now, we've been told a phase one trade deal is close. We had a good friend of this program on yesterday, Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy, talking about enforcement, enforcement, enforcement. Is that where the hang-up is at the moment? Well, good morning. Yeah, I'm sure that enforcement is part of it, but also is the schedule for the purchases of agricultural products and what uh, what the timetable will be. So I think we're really hitting the, the rocky parts here, getting sort of these top-line promises onto paper, and um, a lot of us are, are very nervously watching how this develops. Mary, trade deals take a long time to get on paper. Is that what we're seeing develop here, or are we seeing something that you think you can conclude maybe this doesn't get done? Well, we're worried about it. Um, I think 
as many people do, that there's enormous economic and political good sense to getting a, a trade truce here uh, and get some of these purchases back on, you know, back rolling in the marketplace. So, um, you know, it is difficult to make these kinds of deals, and it really depends on how much they're trying to get done in this phase one. Uh, when we're talking about enforcement, we could be looking at some of the more difficult issues. Yeah. And I think that's going to be very difficult to get done in this short, compressed time period. Is enforcement an issue with soybeans or other phase one items? Surprisingly, yes. Because of the amounts of uh, purchases that have been promised by the president uh, and an uncertain marketplace, uh, there are going to the U.S. is going to yeah. be concerned about how many will be purchased. Okay, but this is great. How how one way is enforcement? Do the Chinese want enforcement so they can count soybeans in Fargo? The Chinese don't want to buy. Well, to be kind of cute, a pig in a poke. They don't want to. No, be this is surveillance. Buying. The kind of cute works, Professor Lovely. <laughs> They don't want to be buying things they don't need, uh, prices that are too high. Uh, so, And they also know this is their key leverage over the Americans. So they are going to try to uh, not make very specific deals on paper, but the Americans want quarter, you know, monthly, quarterly targets that will have to be met by the Chinese for them to be in compliance. All this tells us that some tariffs will remain, and certainly the threat of tariffs being snapped on or increased at any time will remain. So there'll still be a lot of uncertainty for businesses trying to figure out where they're supposed to invest in this new environment. Yeah. Overnight, Chinese economic data, industrial output uh, rising less than expected, retail sales, fixed asset investment, all disappointing. Who has the bigger incentive, China or the U.S., to make a trade deal sooner? Hi, Lisa. Um, I, I think they both have incentives. But, you know, the Chinese system is different than ours. It really falls, I think, on President Trump's political calculations regarding this trade war. Clearly, there are many people who are happy to see the United States standing up to China uh, and giving them hell, as they say. On the other hand, there are a lot of people that are beginning to be very badly hurt by this. Uh, and I think that's got to be a concern to the president and his team. So I would say that the U.S. has a lot here. Uh, China clearly, though, would like an end to this. Unfortunately, we're not going to see an end to conflict. We know that there's a lot of issues coming in the technology space between the two countries, the so-called right. push to decouple. So we're not going to see an end no matter what happens. Who's in charge of saving face right now? I mean, if we've got to get through the next literally days, weeks, months, and you're, you know, Mary, you're expert at this. Who's in need of saving face the most? Wow. I'm not sure uh, that I'm an expert in that part of it because it's really political. And, um, you know, I think that President Trump has been able to sort of spin this the way he wants, at least to some part of the American population. And he will have the ability to say that if a deal isn't reached, you know, he hung in there, he hung tough, he didn't go for a, you know, a cheap shot deal. Um, I think the Chinese have much bigger issues that they're dealing with. Many of them are their own creation, Hong Kong, Xinjiang. They have the slowdown in their own economy due to their uh, reining in of credit. So I would say that um, 
it really is going to fall down to who thinks they have the more political uh, gains to make by having a deal here. I personally think it would be very wise for the president to make a deal. I think we're seeing that these tariffs now have broad coverage. The rates are higher. They're starting to hit a whole bunch of American products that are really going to hurt consumers. This is a consumer-led economy. So I'm hoping that the U.S. uh, negotiating team is able Mm -hmm. to find a way forward. Mary, you mentioned Hong Kong and some of the domestic issues in China at the moment. Help us understand that just a little bit better, how something like Hong Kong can spill over to these broader macro issues and why there might be a problem for some of our listeners in the markets at the moment. How are you framing that, Mary? Well, I am particularly framing it in terms of people's perceptions of China and domestic support for uh, a trade deal with China and also moving forward this idea of technology uh, decoupling. I think that if we see China take a very strong hand in China, if we see a lot of bloodshed, even if things just simply spin out of control in ways they don't want, it's going to to have big replications here in the Congress and among the American people. Mary Lovely, thank you so much for the Peterson Institute. We greatly appreciate your perspective with Bloomberg and surveillance. A house can have a house call, and it can be a pretty cautious call. It really colors every conversation and every tone worldwide when they have a more cautious call. Jen Farrell, can we state that PIMCO has a cautious call? I think we can. Particularly on the corporate credit side. Yeah. I think we can say that, and we can probably say that on U.S. growth relative to expectations going into 2020 as well. If you go on their most recent cyclical outlook, I'm happy that I don't have to speak for them, that Nicola Mai is with us, PIMCO's sovereign credit analyst. So let's do that, Nicola. Let's talk about 2020 and your expectations relative to what you see as the consensus view. Yeah, so um, I would say that, uh, yeah, we have been on the more cautious side. We do expect some kind of reacceleration in growth next year on the back of two things. I mean, first, trade tensions stabilizing, and secondly, monetary policy getting some traction. Uh, but on the whole, we think it's going to be a pretty slow uh, reacceleration, partly because the trade tensions will keep simmering, and partly because, um, yeah, I mean, the, the monetary policy is hitting its limits when it comes to efficacy. We've already had a lot of stimulus before. Let's talk about what that means for markets. This is something you wrote around about a month ago. Monetary stimulus is likely to prove insufficient and largely ineffective in raising depressed inflation expectations. And for that reason, the longer end is expected to remain supported. That's Germany. The long end right now, a 10-year negative 32 basis points. Nicola, are we stuck at these levels then? I would say that, yeah, I see duration globally and especially in Europe as pretty anchored here. Even though the levels look extremely low, I just see it as very difficult for the ECB to actually be able to raise inflation without um, the help from the fiscal authorities. And Draghi has clearly, before leaving, been calling for that very clearly, but we're not seeing enough of a shift in the German political space to, to see that changing. So, so yeah, I would say the long end is pretty pretty anchored. So. The extent of the sell-off in bonds is done. Um, I mean, it's obviously hard to have uh, to call a very near-term uh, move in duration, but 
but generally speaking, we think we've seen a, a decent move here, and we are, you know, we're pretty neutral at these levels. We don't have a very strong conviction on the duration beta at these levels. Some would say that the levels we're seeing on bond yields indicate much slower growth than equity valuations would uh, imply. Do you think that equities are wrong here and have gotten ahead of themselves with pricing in the reacceleration that you're expecting? Well, you see, I, I, th- I see the things as linked in that, uh, you know, equity prices have done well partly because central banks have been extremely accommodative. So so the very kind of like uh, uh, the rally in duration and in interest rates, risk-free interest rates has been pushing up equity prices. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at our outlook, I would say that risk valuations in terms of equities, in terms of credit spreads, and so on do look uh, fairly elevated. Um, so, so yeah, we're pretty cautious when it comes to risk assets at this point. So you're going to grab a coupon this year. How do you defend against price decline while you grab a coupon? So, I, I mean, the way we the way we uh, try to uh, to make alpha, the way we make alpha is to be very selective. So. It doesn't mean not, that we don't take any risk at all, but we go very uh, focused on sectors and areas that we like. So, for example, financials, uh, we think offer good opportunities in the UK, but not only. We think that uh, securitized assets like mortgage securities in the US, where, where households have been delevering a lot, offer good value. We think real estate assets more generally offer, offer decent value. Um, and on duration, you know, we, we have some duration in our portfolios, especially U.S. duration, which we see as a good hedge for, for having some credit risk. Um, mm. And also it still has positive <clears throat> yields. Nicola, thank you so much. Nicola Meyer with PIMCO. Greatly appreciate it with a cautious view. Diane Swank with us, with Grant Thornton. Diane, do we have room for fiscal space in America? Rates are abnormally low on a real and nominal basis. Are we under a complete delusion about our fiscal flexibility? We're not under a complete delusion at the moment. The deficit doesn't matter until it does, and then it matters very rapidly. And I think that's why you saw Jay Powell sort of caution uh, policymakers yesterday and step into the space that many of his predecessors have, Jay Powell's an old deficit hawk, and say, hey, you know, we need to worry about fiscal sustainability because next time we hit a downturn, we will need fiscal stimulus. We have limited tools here. And I think that is very important about thinking about it. And Lisa, I'll be disappointed if this is not front and center at the budget committee. I know there's a lot of politics today, but Chair Powell's got to step out, as as Ms. Swank mentions. He is a deficit hawk. But not all fiscal stimulus is the same. Diane, what could we see that would actually be fruitful at this stage in the economic cycle? You know, that's a really great question. I mean, clearly, the keep focusing on tax cuts, that's sort of a, a story that we've kind of played over and over again and not really worked at this latest stage in the cycle. What we really, really need is, of course, infrastructure investment, R&D investment, investment that will have productivity growth with it down the road and will change the equation across the board for the American economy, not just for individuals that get those temporary tax cuts. That's what's really important at this stage of the game is to think about the long-term potential of the economy to grow. And long-term investments at these low interest rates, investments in our infrastructure do actually make sense. So there's a payoff to issuing cheap bonds and getting 
some productivity down the road. So uh, PPI uh, inflation coming in below expectations if you strip out food, energy, uh, and trade-weighted items. I'm trying to figure out what we're seeing here and how concerning this sort of decelerating inflation is. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's the what came up yesterday in Chairman Powell's questioning was also the gap in inflation between low-income households and high-income households. And this is something that's not gotten enough attention is the, the heterogeneity in the data. You know, we look at the economic aggregates and we say, oh, we're worried about disinflation. We're worried about too low inflation. There's legitimate reasons to worry about that. That said, lower-income households and many households are saying, we don't see the low inflation. What are you talking about? Because the things they're paying for, not only do they not have the market power of higher-income households, they also have a fixed basket of goods costs that cost more, that they sort of don't have as much wiggle room. And this is really hard for the Fed because at that point in time, you say you want to run the economy hotter and get more inflation, hopefully from wage gains. But what if you don't get those wage gains? Then you're left out and getting hotter inflation, especially for low-income households, and not getting it spread across the economy evenly. Diane, the latest communication from the Federal Reserve echoed once again from Chairman Powell yesterday, likely to do the same thing today on growth, what they would need to see to introduce another rate reduction, a material reassessment in the outlook. What constitutes a material reassessment in the outlook? A major escalation in trade with China. I mean, part of the reason they stepped to the sidelines now and felt like they were done for a while is that they were hoping for this phase one deal with China, which now again looks in jeopardy, and not a further escalation in tariffs on December 15th. If we can get over those hurdles, the Fed will feel more comfortable in staying on the sidelines longer and holding their powder dry. I myself, of course, am worried about the trade war and wish they would have held that one rate cut a little little bit back and then waited for when the big bang for the dollar was greater. But it is something that is really front and center is the trade war with China, China having more weakness in their economy, again, reporting in, in the last day. Diane Swank, too short. We'll do it again. Diane Swank with Grant Thornton, of course, always giving us good uh, help here on Fed Day uh, with perspective. And of course, out of Chicago with a real Midwest feel uh, as well. I can't focus, Paul, because I'm looking at buying the Ninja Supra kitchen blender system with food processor BL780 for $99 from Walmart. (laughs) That must mean it's time to talk to Sarah Halsack. Sarah, if I want to buy a Ninja Supra kitchen blender system with food processor, comma, BL780, why am I going to buy it from Walmart and not from Amazon? So Walmart has been making a lot of progress in the e-commerce division. Uh, sales were up 41% in the latest quarter. Um, and they are really, uh, you know, Amazon, of course, there's the splashy news that they were moving to one-day shipping yeah. a lot of prime orders. Walmart has answered that with not quite as large an assortment as Amazon is offering one-day shipping on, but um, basically on all the sort of most mm. commonly purchased yeah. items. And so, um, and you don't need a prime membership, right? Prime costs $119 a year. Uh, Walmart doesn't okay. have a membership format. So if you're going to buy your blender, yeah. that that would be the reason to do it at Walmart. Well, I'm on Ninja Blender because I want total crushing technology, crushes <laughs> ice, whole fruits and vegetables in seconds. Okay, great, Sarah. What portion of Walmart is their future Amazon? 
I think the most important part of Walmart's success going forward is its grocery division. This accounts for 56% of their U.S. sales, and it's a key traffic driver to the rest of the departments. And it's an area where they really do have an advantage against Amazon. They have this really well-developed, fresh supply chain, moving perishables uh, to customers' doorsteps into stores. It's just a whole different enchilada than moving books or sweaters, right? Um, And Walmart has the infrastructure to do that nationwide much better than Amazon does. And they've had a lot of success with their online grocery pickup program, and they've now rolled out delivery from 1,400 stores. And Amazon, to me, just seems to be increasingly incoherent in the grocery space, right? They plunked down all this money for Whole Foods, you know, just two and a half years ago, and now they're starting a second grocery chain they've confirmed Uh, this week. You know, this is important, Paul. You can get the old El Paso enchilada dinner kit, 14 (laughs) ounces for $6.50. That's if you want the Halzak whole enchilada. All right, and I get the the Halzak discount, of course, I'm sure. So, Sarah, talk to us about a little bit about the the stores, the actual Walmart stores. Are they still opening new stores? No, they've really uh, backed away from that. that. I mean, there may be an occasional, you know, they might open, say, 10 stores in a given year. But really now it's more about remodeling the fleet that they already have, making sure those store environments are inviting. And most of their CapEx at this point is going into uh, online shopping, right? It's building out that warehouse infrastructure um, and software and all those kinds of things uh, to really be able to take the fight to Amazon in the digital space. So I'm looking at the... Um uh, the Bloomberg terminal, the PGO function for Walmart, it gives us kind of this cool revenue breakdown by geography. So they get about 23% of their revenue from Walmart International. Talk to us about their international strategy. Is that where they see growth going forward? Yeah, uh, so Walmart, particularly in markets like Mexico, that's an important market for them where uh, things have been strong and where uh, they see some good runway for growth. Uh, Other international markets are more uncertain. You know, they had uh, tried to sell their ASDA division earlier this year in the U.K. and were blocked blocked by regulators from doing that. Um, and clearly the UK with Brexit looming is a, is a market um, that where there's a lot of uncertainty and where yeah. the, the customer has been a little bit more challenging for them to reach. So international is important, <clears throat> but US is still the bulk of the operating income and is where uh, investors are yeah. really focused. Sarah, under the filter system for walmart.com, I put under Halsack, typed it in. Angara has a Black Friday sale a classic ruby and diamond necklace and 14 karat white for $66,000. On Walmart? Walmart is selling $66,000 necklaces? So Walmart has made a, a big effort in the last couple of years to expand its third-party marketplace, um, where much like how Amazon, uh, a lot of the merchandise you see for sale on that website is not actually held in an Amazon warehouse uh, or sold directly by Amazon, Walmart is trying to get into that same space to sort of uh, make sure it has a, a, a wide assortment to compete with the everything store. And I, wow. my best guess is that that's where that $66,000 bling is coming from. It's pretty solid there, Tom. I it, it is. It's just, it's just one click away, Tom. One click. You look under Halsick, and there it is. Sarah, I'm looking at the stock here, up 33% this year. Yeah. It's hitting a 52-week yeah. high today. Sarah, are the, are the bulls just saying, you know, the consumer's in good shape. Walmart's figured out this online shopping thing. They're not. Walmart's not putting them out of business. Is that kind of the bull case for Walmart? 
Uh, that's a lot of it. And then I think the other thing is that um, if we do go into a recession, um, if there is an economic downturn or if uh, the trade war continues to be a problem for the retail industry, Walmart is perhaps better insulated from all of that than anybody. Yeah. If we get into a recession, uh, folks tend to trade down, right? And where do you trade down to? But Walmart. Um, so they tend to actually, yeah. uh, you know, 2009 was actually a quite good year for them um, as folks were pinching pennies. And same with tariffs. Uh, obviously, it's a very uncertain environment around that right now. But because of Walmart's sheer scale, uh, its yeah. ability to negotiate with suppliers <clears throat> is pretty unmatched oh. in the industry. You've been great about that, Sarah. Let's frame that right now. Revenue is half a trillion dollars. They take six cents down to the operating income line, the EBITDA line. Like we all know, Walmart is a three cents on the dollar business. You walk in the store and they pocket three cents of every dollar you spend as a generalization. From where you said, and you know, Sarah, this is maybe too financial, but let's go with it anyways. Are they going to become a more blue chippy company where they rotate from use of cash to build, build, build out to legit dividend growth? I mean, are they at a tip point where the family says, let's start acting like a mature company? I mean, I think Walmart's been acting like a mature company for some time, with the exception of, you know, having to uh, incubate this e-commerce business from scratch, uh, from within, you know, from within a very different kind of business. Um, but I think they're, you know, they have a new CEO of their U.S. business, uh, John Ferner, who's a, a Walmart lifer, but will bring sort of a new eye uh, to running the U.S. business specifically. And I'm sure he'll be doing so with an eye toward kind of bridging this, this sort of new part of uh, of the business, the e-commerce, yeah. uh, with the legacy, uh, the more mature part of the business, the physical stores that they know how to run so well. You know, something, Sarah, that works for the office, you can tell Mr. Halsek, Sarah, some things, the 14-karat yellow gold, $24,000 bracelets is you. <laughs> Sarah Halsek giving us wisdom on Walmart, really an extraordinary story. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.